My guest today needs absolutely no introduction. If you've been in sales for any time in the past 30 years, you may have had the pleasure of being in this man's class. If you haven't, you've seriously missed out, but you certainly will know who he is. My guest today is Guru Ganesha. You're very welcome to the podcast. Well, pleasure to be with you today. The pleasure is absolutely all mine. Uh, Ganesh, I wanted to ask you, you weren't always Guru Ganesh. That's Take correct. me back a little bit before that, who you were. Tell me a little bit about your background. Well, I was born to an Irish Catholic mother and a, uh, a father of Russian Jewish ancestry. So I, 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 I always joke when I get in front of a class, you know, first thing I'll say is I say, you know, generally when we get in front of a room, first thing people want to know is Ganesh, what's with the turban and the beard? And I say, well, there's an easy explanation for this. What you have to understand is my father's Russian Jewish ancestry, my mother's Irish Catholic. This is what happens. They warned you about mixing Jews and Catholics, right? <laughs> but yeah, no, I was born Michael Gonick, G-O-N-I-C-K, and uh, in Boston, Massachusetts, 1950, which makes me 70 years young, and um, uh, grew up uh, close to Boston, went to a university called Clark University in Worcester, Mass, which was most uh, famous for being one of the two places that Sigmund Freud visited when he came to the U.S. It's a psychology school, which has come into play quite a bit in my sales training, sales and sales training career, since so much of it is psychology, is understanding human beings. And then in, the, uh, in college, I kind of... Uh, I, I, I joked that I majored in chemistry. In other words, I took about 150 LSD trips, and by the hundredth, I had no idea why I should ever go to a class again, you know? And uh, so I still need 21 credits to get my BS. And uh, my mother, to her dying day, kept, uh, insisted that I get my degree, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I agreed to it on her, uh, at her uh, deathbed, and I still haven't done it yet. <laughs> well, you went into sales, isn't that another form of BS? Uh, sales? Well, I, I think, you know, the beautiful thing about sales is, and I consider it to be a very inspirational thing if the intention is right. If the intention is to only do business, if both parties are truly convinced it's the right thing to do and that the client's going to get a great return on investment, that turn that kind of intention turns it into it turns it into a noble profession. Now, the intention to make a sale, regardless of whether it's in your client's best interest or not, turns it into a manipulative game. So, I prefer to do the teach how to do it the former way, which builds tremendous amount of trust. But in any event, back to college, so I, I, got, uh, I got heavily into music. I'm a guitarist since age eight. And so uh, I started an acid rock band in college in 1969. And, uh, you know, we tried to live up to the genre's name even in rehearsals, which is how I ended up taking so many chemicals. But at the end of about three and a half years of that, I had an inner voice that's saying, hey, Ganesh. Oh, I wasn't Ganesh at that time. I was Fly Mike. Hey, Fly, 
You better find an alternative way to feel good or you're going to die young. And that's when I started, uh, I, I met a yogi from India who happened to be of the Sikh religion. And I started studying yoga and meditation and, uh, you know, healthy living at a young age, at age 21. And it really transformed my life. Mm. I want to talk to you about that. But something you said a moment ago that grabbed my attention was fly. Where did that come from? Oh, well, because I was always flying high, you know. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> you know, I'm following. I thought maybe it came from fishing or something, you know. it's yeah. No, no, no. You get tagged with a name because, uh, oh, Ganesh is high again. Boy, he's flying, you know. But uh, fortunately, the yoga path helped me to clean up, clean up my act before I died young, you know. So what was it about that that spoke to you? Well, I, I, I learned that uh, you can feel uplifted naturally without chemistry. You know, really, and as simple as changing your whole physiology via your breath. Because most people, they're breathing, but they're barely even aware that they're breathing. It's, I mean, it's like the universe is breathing through you. But in yoga and meditation, you learn how to breathe consciously. Most importantly, to slow everything down, you know, because the mind is a thought machine and it's producing many thoughts per millisecond. And, uh, you know, and if, uh, the average human being like right now, if you checked, you're probably taking 12. Oh, you seem very relaxed, Paul, but you're probably taking 12 to 20 breaths per minute. I discovered with some guidance from people who'd done it before, you know, uh, that if you can get your rate of breath down under two, three breaths per minute for an extended period of time, you almost go into an alternate state of consciousness. And also you, you get, you connect to this part of yourself that uh, it's a deep sense of well-being and okayness. Like, you know, and the way that applies to sales is that you're, you're in front of your prospective client, you're fully present in the here now, and you're not really that worried about whether you make a sale or not because you have this deep sense of okayness that even if you don't make a sale, you're going to be okay. So as a result, you become more trustworthy to the prospective client. And people do business with people they like and trust. So a lot of it has to do with the presence that you bring to the call. So I want okay. to talk about that because... Any, sorry. <laughs> uh, sorry, say that again. I cut across you. I'm sorry. No, I, 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 I said that, uh, oh, you know, it's unimportant. I've already, I had a senior moment and it's passed. No, it was my, my fault. Sorry, I cut across you. Because what I wanted to ask you about was that, that presence. Anybody who's ever seen you on stage know that you have incredible presence and you're also incredibly, incredibly present. And I think they're two different things, or, or maybe one comes from the other. And everything I've read talks about presence in terms of physiology, tonality, but it comes from a mindset and, and very few people I know know how to tap into that. It's one thing to, to act as if, but something else to, to intuitively or instinctively be able to get yourself into that state. And I remember years ago, you won't remember this, but you were in Dublin and we met up for breakfast and I think it was the Fitzpatrick's Castle Hotel. If, and uh, you talked about the breathing. 
which fascinated me and, and, and you showed me this exercise by which you cover your nose and you in, inhale slowly and out. And, and what that spoke to me, apart from the technique, was that that presence that you inhabit doesn't come by accident, that it's, there's, a, there's a habit behind it. And, yes. and maybe you could share that with, yes. with our listeners because it's, it, it seems so simple and straightforward, but has such an incredible impact. Well, you know, it's, uh, uh, for example, that morning we had breakfast was probably the morning of a day that I was going to deliver a training program. Is that correct? And I have a whole routine that I prepare myself to be fully present for my students. And it's very similar to what a professional athlete might do in advance, you know. But my preparation involves, you know, I get if I'm training, say, starting at 8.30 or 9 in the morning, I'll get up in the hotel maybe 5.30 and uh, take a cold shower or bath uh, because uh, the cold water gets the blood going like this and it wakes you up quickly. I'll do about a half hour of uh, yoga, asanas, postures, get everything fully stretched out so I can be flexible, not just in body but in mind. And then I do what's called pranayama, breathing exercises. And I probably taught you the alternate nostril breathing where you inhale long, slow and deep through the left nostril, then you hold the breath for as long as you comfortably can. Then slowly exhale out the right, hold it out as long as you comfortably can, and then start again, but this time starting through the right nostril, which balances out. You got four zones in the brain and two hemispheres. It totally balances out the brain. And after a while, there is no, no past and no future. Lao Tzu once said that that uh, de depression is caused by constantly thinking about the past and your shortcomings and mistakes. And that anxiety is caused by thinking about the future, you know. I'm, am I going to be able to perform? Am I going to meet expectations, you know. But uh, the key, uh, peace is found in the present moment when you're fully in the present moment, that you're this miraculous entity, a human being, that's gifted with this breath, which you can't quite figure out where is it coming from, you know, but it's there. Of course, when it stops, you're no longer there or you move into some other, uh, you know, transitional state. But um, uh, so I really worked at being fully present. The other uh, thing I noticed from the uh, breathing exercise and then followed by a deep, still meditation where you're not even thinking about breathing. You're just sitting in perfect stillness, just observing your breath and observing yourself with no judgment. Because we, we, we cause most of the anxiety that we feel is because the you know the mind is a thought machine and it produces such an infinite variety of thoughts and every one of those thoughts is almost instantaneously company accompanied by a feeling which you can put into two categories they're okay or not okay right certain percentage of the thoughts produce not okay okay feelings about the self certain percentage of thoughts make you go ah okay feelings Depression is when 50 or 60% or more of your thoughts are accompanied by not okay feelings. So uh, a big part of my preparation for training is to get okay with myself. It's an inside out game. 
Because I, I, I already know before I step on the stage how good I'm going to be based on my inner state. And have you ever been caught short on that where you felt after doing those exercises it wasn't working for you? Or, or is it that you know that if you go through this routine you can bank it? Well, I've been caught short when I have uh, haven't had time or I woke up one time with food poisoning from a meal the night before and I had to train at nine o'clock and I just wasn't, I barely crawled to the training room, you know, but uh, uh, the mornings that I've, uh, you know, that I've uh, awoken feeling good and I've had the time to put in about an hour of preparation I would say I've been as close to a hundred percent success rate as as is possible. No, it's it's uh, it, it once again I, there's an inner state that I can get into. I call it the zone. That's uh, and, and and the other thing that comes along with it is really acute mental verbal coordination. You know, whereas I'm able to articulate what's being produced up here. As opposed to, you ever had those days where you felt there was a disconnect between your mind, your thought, and what you were able to articulate to the group? Interestingly, my business partner, you may have met him, Frank Garza, his son just got named the uh, NCAA uh, uh, Basketball Player of the Year by a whole variety of publications. And uh, last year in his junior year, he was having a great year, but uh, he went into a period of time where he was having tremendous performance anxiety because the expectations had gotten so high. And he went six straight games in a row where his numbers were much lower. And he was really almost distraught. And Frank and I talked about, we decided to start uh, doing this meditation, doing my preparation for training with Luca, Luca Garza, check it out, do a Google search on Luca Garza. You know, he's uh, just got named a Associated Press Player of the Year. He averaged 24.1 points a game. Big man, 6'11". He, sh he shoots 44% from three-point land. In any event, since that time, we've been meditating uh, three hours before game, every game that he's had the last two years. And this year he added, even on non-game days, we've been doing a half hour meditation with him, having a phenomenal year. And he credits part of it. You know, he, obviously we can't say meditation's 100% reason. The fact that he's 6'11", 265, and such, got a super uh, great work ethic has made a difference. But he feels that uh, uh, being fully present has enabled him to be, you know, to uh, really leverage his gifts as a basketball player, as opposed to worried about, am I going to make this shot? Am I, you know, because his mind, he's got a, a powerful mind that's constantly in motion. So what he needed was to slow it down and to stop listening to the outside noise, you know. Yeah. How do you think people then can leverage that? Because you're going out to perform for an entire day and that takes an extraordinary amount of energy and presence and focus somebody who maybe is in and out of that throughout the day making calls here running to a meeting there in terms of the preparation what would you recommend how how can they leverage that but where they may not want to spend three hours or have three hours in the morning 
Well, it's really, I, I would say, like with Luca, we just do a 20 to 30 minute session. And it's also, I've, teach, uh, I've taught them uh, like some three to five minute exercises that you can sprinkle throughout the day. You got to train yourself when you're starting to feel anxiety. We're all human. And the anxiety always comes when you're thinking about a future event, like a sales call. Oh, I've got this super important sales call. If I can knock down this deal, I'll be 300% of quota. If I don't, I'll be 17. I had a year like that. I had this one huge deal when I was selling, uh, you know, computerized management systems in the 80s. I'd been working on this deal six months. If I landed it, I was going to be 300% of quota. That's how big a deal was. If I didn't, I'd be 17%. Talk about pressure. But I fortunately had uh, the presence of mind to remember to do a 20-minute meditation before the call. And by the time I showed up for the call, I did it in the car outside in the parking lot. By the time I walked in, I was just so relaxed. My eyes were twinkling a little bit, you know, and I just felt like, you know what, I don't don't even care if I make the sale or not. I'm totally fine. Why am I worried about it? I've never missed a meal before. And I I think people don't realize the power of, uh, uh, in conscious selling, we do, we spend a lot of time on the inside game. Yeah. Yeah. And how long does that take? Because here's the thing. I don't know how long it was for you, but the time you took from seeing there was a different way of selling to mastering that where it was just totally unconscious. It was like two plus two. I'm guessing it wasn't overnight. You mean mastering meditation, you mean? No, 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 no. But selling in terms of a sales process and where you, you had that pivotal moment when you realized sales wasn't about showing up and throwing up. Right. But it was more of a conversational, creating mutual, uh, you know, a comfortable environment, setting expectations, all of that. To master that, I'm, I'm going to assume it wasn't overnight, but that it I, took some time. Off, I don't consider myself a master. You know, I, I think that, uh, 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 I mean, sales is a series of human interactions, right? And that's infinite. Because, you know, the human mind, the human psyche is infinity. And there's so many different folks that you meet. And uh, every sales call is fresh and new. It's kind of exciting. And, uh, you know, you're always running into uh, different types of people whose minds work differently, whose personalities are differently. But what I discovered in the early uh, 80s when I, I, I took a consultative sales training program that really was seminal for me, was learning that sales was not about convincing people. You know, because up till that point, uh, I, the, my primary way of selling was trying to talk people into things. You know, and I'm pretty quick on my feet conversationally. And I was able to make a certain number of sales, but a certain percentage of people were uncomfortable with the seller doing this all the time. Why? Because they've had bad experiences in the past with sellers who were trying to arm wrestle them to the mat, trying, who were emotionally invested in making the sale, who are trying to convince them to buy. So they're all carrying around in their psyche this negative stereotype, right? Even we do as salespeople and sales trainers of the typical pushy, obnoxious, self-serving, overly aggressive seller, needy, trying to get their, their needs met, not yours. 
So when I made, was able to make that shift, well, well, first when I had the experience, oh, wow, you mean sales doesn't have to be convincing. I remember even when I'd make a sale, I'd need two weeks off to recover. It was, that's a lot of tension, a lot of effort trying to close somebody, right? And uh, I started to learn that, hey, if, if you become a great facilitator instead of a convincer and you let them convince you not only that they have challenges in an area where you might have a solution, but that finding a better way to address that issue is a high priority to their business and to them personally, people will sell themselves, assuming you have a solution that hits the center of the target for what they're trying to accomplish. I'm going to assume, though, that it wasn't an overnight process getting to that state where you were comfortable in that skin. No. And I'm wondering, because this, this is a question I often have for myself, and I wanted to get your take on it, where it, it, it and you're right, it's, it's an ongoing project, for sure. But you get to a stage, for me, it took several months, maybe even a few years before you got to own it. Um, yet, corporate buyers wanted in a two-day or a one-and-a-half-day workshop. How do you, yeah, uh, you know, how that, you get around that? Well, you, you got to tell them on the front end, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, do they want Band-Aid training, you know, a one or two day boot camp so that there's a highlight at their uh, worldwide sales kickoff, something everybody remembers, or that do they really want, uh, you know, uh, their uh, sales team to uh, internalize you know, uh, the methodology and, uh, and see significant improvement results wise. And that's more of an ongoing process, right? Short, regular doses of the right training, the right practice can make a huge difference. Because I can tell you in a one or two day uh, session, probably the best you can do is have people come out, out of it uh, kind of uh, 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 believing that these core concepts that you talked about can make a significant difference. But what they don't do, uh, uh, that's called buy-in, all right? You can gain the buy-in from a group in, in, in one day or in two days to where they start believing, yeah, gee, if I really internalize this and I can execute this in, in real time with tough buyers and real live buyer-seller situations, I'm gonna be more effective. Uh, but there's a big difference between starting to believe it and owning it. Owning it means under pressure in a tough uh, buyer-seller environment, you're able to execute your system. And you're able to get 99 out of 100 people telling you about their problems, telling you about their challenges they face. And, you know, you and I both, I, I mean, at, at least myself, and I know you have a lot of technology clients, but I, I specialize in training companies that sell complex, big dollar technical solutions. That doesn't happen overnight, you know? They're selling cycles, the length of time from the initial point of contact to will you either have a signed contract or a clear no, can vary anywhere from two months to 18 months. And uh, so, you know, and there's a lot of moving parts that you've got to manage. And all it takes is one bad interaction with the wrong person. And a whole deal that you've been working on for months can go like that. Uh, a question for you. Um, don't take this the wrong way. 
you're, you said you're, you're, you're just, have you turned 70 yet? Yes, I did, oh, yes. Last, I did last September. Okay. Um, uh, you don't need the money. You're 70 years of age. Why do you still do this? Well, I, I do it because my business, I made a commitment to my business partner. I was going to retire about five years ago. Frank was convinced that we had something here that, that could have global impact. And, uh, and uh, you know, uh, 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 Frank and I are really good friends. He's like an eccentric genius. He's a visionary, you know. He does, he, sometimes he grates on people a little bit here and there. But he's really a brilliant guy. And he's a better trainer than people realize. Look, he took his son, who at three years old, he put a basketball in his hand. Frank played basketball at the University of Idaho back in the 80s and was all conference, but he never made it to the professional level that he wanted to make. But he gave, put a, a basketball in his son's hand. He's coached his son from being this slow, clumsy little kid to becoming the best college basketball player in the world. And uh, so, uh, you know, this guy can train. I'm more, I'm better at inspiring people uh, to buy into a set of concepts. So that's what I do now. I don't do full days anymore, Paul. I, I've been doing, and, I'll, and in light of this pandemic, I've been doing all this stuff on Zoom, which, which I roll, I'm about 10 feet from my bedroom here, and the refrigerator's downstairs. I've given, given a bunch of kickoffs in January and February, just two-hour talks. Uh, right from here, right near all my guitars and everything, you know, and uh, my job, and I've, I've actually gotten pretty efficient at it in about 90 minutes to two hours, I can get literally 100%, 99% buy-in from a team, uh, from a sales team, because these concepts are so potent. And then after that, it's up to my younger, you know, smarter, better looking colleagues to then do the training and, and, and ensure that the stuff sticks. Yeah. Was Zoom any kind of a struggle for you to begin with getting used to that? Because anybody who's ever seen you train, it, you're, it's a very physical experience and a very visceral experience. Mm -hmm. And technology can be a barrier to that. And I'm just curious to know what your experience of that was and how you've gotten around it. Well, it, it was a challenge until I was able to reorganize my mindset on it, you know, because as you've seen, I, uh, uh, you know, I, I joke that my cardiologist says I have to walk five to seven miles a day, which meant all I had to do was a day of training because I would log. I wore one of those thing, uh, uh, one of those apps and I, I do log about five to seven miles. And I, that's why I always ask for a bigger room than they necessarily need because I need to cover a lot of ground. That gave me energy, but now on Zoom, I got to sit kind of fixed. So, I, you know, you can see I'm moving. I still got to move. And, Is that a conscious thing? Because I've noticed that. I notice you move a lot. Is that to keep people's attention? You're doing it on purpose or is it just that's a style? It's just the way you engage. It's more me being me. You know, and, I, and I'm sure if, if uh, you know, all my professional colleagues were convinced it was a negative, maybe they could have convinced me not to do it, you know. But nobody ever made a concerted effort to convince me not to move. 
Although it's, uh, you know, there are some people who feel like you have more impact just standing behind the podium. Interestingly, my business partner, Frank, is six foot seven inches tall, and he actually is a little bit more impactful when he just, you know, takes full advantage of his six foot seven inch presence and doesn't move around as much as me. But I'm a little five foot nine and a half inch point guard, you know, so I have to move. I have to deliver the ball to different places, you know. <laughs> Talk to me about your music because I don't think you're uh, you're doing the acid uh, punk or the rock music anymore. Um, talk to me what it means to you, and I, I'm guessing you're not playing a lot. You're not traveling anymore with it, but uh, well, I will be. I will be again, but uh, I haven't been the last. You know, it's interesting. And one of the reasons I'm feeling so healthy right now at age 70 is that I haven't been on a plane for. Uh, uh, you know, probably 12 months. My last live training program was in Berlin, Germany in early February last year, right before the pandemic uh, hit. But um, uh, prior to that, for 30 years prior, I've been logging somewhere between 100,000 to 250,000 air miles a year. I didn't realize how much that wears you down a little bit, you know. I'm not sure we're designed to be up in these like steel tubes uh, going thousands of miles an hour or whatever, but uh, it would be tough. I remember that day, uh, you know, the day prior I had flown all the way from Washington, D.C. to Berlin. I got up that morning and it's uh, what, 2 a.m. <laughs> East Coast time. Boy, that was a slog that day. Somehow it took me quite a while to get myself where I knew I needed to be. And But I remember on my flight home, I was going, boy, I would be fine not having to do this again this lifetime. You know? So if you could only do one activity, either play in your band or go stand in front of a group and inspire them, which one would you pick? Well, maybe some people will be disappointed to hear me say this, but play with my band, you know. There's something about music. And, uh, and, and the interesting thing is, yeah, I sing and we sing. We sing very positive, uplifting lyrics, trying to inspire the people that, uh, to their better angels. Uh, but my most cosmic experiences are had via, the, uh, via instrumental music. Something about I feel like I'm able to fully express my soul, uh, express my soul non-verbally. I'm I'm from the Jerry Garcia school of guitar playing. I you're probably too young to remember Jerry Garcia, but he was the lead guitar player, the Grateful Dead. Yeah, I'm sure he came to Ireland a few times, but uh, his guitar playing for me was mesmerizing. I would call him my guitar guru or guitar hero. I patterned my playing after his for many years, although after a while you become you. You've got mentors, but eventually it all merges and, you're, and you fully accept you. Um, but I love playing the guitar. In fact, when we're done, I, I, I'll start, I'm recording remotely on Monday and Tuesday, so I'll start working on the song that we're recording remotely. Can you believe they do that now? I can sit right here and uh, they can my producers in LA, he can record me in real time, both vocals and guitar, amazing. When you say producer in LA, that sounds so cool. That sounds like it's, it's real top of the pop stuff. Um, 
it's, you obviously take this seriously. Yeah, I take it serious, but our genre is not as uh, well known as, say, pop music. You know, I'd say we're more in the yoga music. Uh, you know, there's millions and millions of people now doing yoga, and a lot of the uh, uh, studios will play music while people are doing yoga. Music that's soothing, and maybe if it has lyric, it's very uplifting. And that's the kind of genre that I've been in. And, uh, you know, we, uh, they kind of call us at the Grammys the new age category. But I've never been nominated for a Grammy, although I toured for 11 years with a gal who was uh, uh, just recently, but she didn't win it, but she was nominated for a Grammy. And it was always a, a she had the kind of voice that could rest tears from a stone gargoyle. You know, the minute she started singing, she's like an extraterrestrial. And I was fortunate, I was her business manager. I, st I founded the record label that uh, kind of quote discovered her. And I toured with her for about 10 years where we were back. And this was from about 2000 to 2010. We did 70 to 100 concerts a year all over the world. And I was still doing 50 to 75 full days of sales training at the same time. <laughs> that works maybe when you're 50, but doesn't quite work as well at age 70, you know. I hate to admit that I have a little less energy, but I have a little less energy than I used to. Yeah, you're worn out. That's just incredible, that is. That's, well, that wore kudos out. to you. People half your age wouldn't have half that energy. That's just incredible. It really is. Uh, I wanted to ask you a couple of other questions around. I remember you, a talk you gave once. You talked about the importance of diet in terms of mindset, which sounded like a strange connection at first, but how it affects our outlook and our moods. Could you talk to me a little bit about that, please? Well, certain foods uh, are uh, make your blood more acidic, and uh, and certain foods make your blood more alkaline. One thing I've noticed when I eat alkaline foods, my mind is, uh, uh, the, the uh, emotions that accompany the thoughts are more positive. I just happened, you know, and, and I discovered there were studies too that said when the blood is acidic, people get depressed. So I tried to eat lots of fresh fruits, lots of fresh vegetables, either sauteed or steamed, lots of, uh, for protein I'll eat, um, uh, what's called tofu that are made from soybeans. I do, I, I added eggs to my diet. I hadn't eaten eggs, you know, from uh, 70 up to about 2010. But, you know, I had a doctor said, Ganesh, Ganesh, you got to have a little more protein. Try hard boiled eggs or something. And, uh, but I, mostly I eat foods that are very light and easy to digest. Because uh, I, I discovered, you know, I, I'm not going to get in the moral aspects of eating meat or this or that. But something, the yogi that I studied with said, told me that uh, to, uh, digesting flesh would take 24 hours. So if you ate uh, uh, meat every single day of the week, then your body was constantly processing, constantly digesting. Whereas eating a meal of, uh, you know, say sauteed vegetables and rice would take an hour and a half, two hours to digest. And uh, I, 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 what I discovered is, hmm, and his point was you have more energy available to you when your body isn't busy digesting. 
Well, I, you know, I'm not a scientist in that regard, but I, I've used my body as a test tube, and I do the things that kind of, you know, I've been addicted to having high, you know, to be in our business, you have to have high energy. Well, well, you could do that number of classes and that number of concerts, that's it. That's the evidence. That's, that's all you need. And anybody who's ever met you know that you're, you're, you're high energy. And something else, I remember, I mean, you, you've given many talks while you were at Sandler, and they were the kind of talks where people would see them on the agenda. It didn't make a difference what the topic was. You were giving it so people would show up because they knew they were going to learn something and they were going to be entertained. There was a talk you gave which people still talk about and, and, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about it. And it was the power of conviction. Yes. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. I, I, it, it just it was something in it that touched everybody and continues to. So I'd love you to share that with our listeners. Well, let's face it, Paul. Our actions are a manifestation of our beliefs. I used to joke when the folks... Uh, were in front of me for a class and early on I'd introduce that concept so I'd say for example you're here for a reason this morning not necessarily that you want to sit through a day of sales training but you when you got up this morning and came to consciousness and realized that you have a day of sales training on your schedule your belief was well I, I better show my face right I better show my, some people, their belief was, wow, wow, sales training. But for a lot of people, is I, I need to show my face because if I don't show my face, my managers are going to think I'm not interested in getting better. So actions are manifestation of beliefs. And that's why even in terms of a company embracing and successfully implementing a sales methodology, step one is, is you got to win over their heart, mind, heart, and soul. They've got to buy into the concepts. They've got to start believing that, wow, if I can successfully implement these concepts, I'm going to be more successful. So if you skip that step, which most of, uh, you know, most of my, our competitors out there skip that step. They don't realize that if you don't get the buy-in, from 99% of the field, and even more importantly, 99%, preferably 100% of the sales management team, starting from frontline sales manager right up to the CEO, the implementation has little or no chance of success because they're not going to do the work necessary to own the stuff unless they believe there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. So I, I put a lot of emphasis, and, and one of the things I even, uh, I train people in terms of intention on the front end of a sales call, let your prospect know, it would sound like this, you know, Paul, I don't know yet if we're right for you. We're not right for everybody. And uh, I, I suggest that we only consider doing business together if both of us are convinced believe it's the right thing to do and that you guys are going to get a great return on investment. So I know I'm not there yet and I'm assuming you're not there yet, correct? And then, you know, that relaxes the other person. And I'm not saying to do that as a t tactic. I'm saying to mean that. And then that, you know, if, 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 if you realize, hey, they could have 10 problems that your solution addresses, but they've got to convince you 
that finding a better way is a high enough priority to their business and especially to them personally to work to where they'll walk side by side with you through, through the process. And believe me, it's a dead giveaway. If doing something like this, if, if finding a better solution to a set of problems is not a high priority to them personally, they will not walk side by side with you through the process. And then you're in the uncomfortable position of trying to drag your buyer kicking and screaming to the decision-making altar. Not a good place to be in. You become a beggar instead of a trusted advisor. So that, that, that speaks to me around conviction in terms of the, 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 the relationship between the buyer and seller. Talk to me a little bit also about conviction in terms of the value you bring and how yes. that influences the conversations you pursue. Yes. Well, uh, you know, because uh, I know I think that I, I'm, I'm uh, familiar with that talk that uh, you're reminding me of, the conviction talk that, you know, I get calls from Sandler guys all the time about, oh, that conviction talk. Well, because I taught them how to raise their prices, that price is never the real issue. And in fact, it's so important, or, you know, I, I, I also tell, uh, train people, you ought not even have a conversation on price until they've already convinced you that it's in their best interest to pay you that price. And the only way that you can do that is if you're a great listener and you're great at asking questions early, you get them to acknowledge or talk about their issues, but you also, a very important part of that due diligence discovery at the front end is getting them to articulate to you what's the business financial impact those issues are having. And, and if they, A, either don't know what the impact those issues are having or they can't quantify it, then I start moving towards the door because I'll say, well, you know, uh, because uh, uh, before I even want to talk price, Let's say my solution's 100,000 pounds. Before I even want to talk about that, they need to convince me that the issues that my solution addresses are costing them probably at least 10 times that and money left on the table. So, uh, uh, and, and, you know, especially in sales training, price is never the real issue. And I discovered that over the years. I mean, I started my career in 89 charging $1,000 for a day of training, which was a lot of money. But slowly over time, I raised it and raised it, raised it, right up till my last on-site training days were at 50K each. As of late 2019, uh, 2020, and you know what? If people believe that what you teach them and what you help their people internalize is gonna make millions of dollars worth of difference, 50,000 is a drop in the bucket, you know? So here's an interesting thing then, as you think about that, you're really substituting the buyer's conviction from any sense of technical ROI. So many sellers want to focus on, on on a spreadsheet version of the ROI. What I'm hearing from you is saying, you don't need that. They just need to believe. 
Yeah, and, 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 and the interesting thing is there's a lot of companies that I train, tech companies that I train that have developed this whole ROI mechanism, you know. And, uh, you know, and I tell them, I, uh, I say, before you agree to do that kind of an ROI, an ROI uh, system that you developed, ask the buyer something like, hey, Paul, let me ask you this. Let's pretend we do this ROI study and I come back to you in three weeks and bottom of page six, it says you're going to get a six time return on investment first six months. Would you believe it? Now, of course, the majority of people you ask that question, they'll say, probably not. And then I would say, well, then can I have your permission not to do the ROI study? Instead of an ROI, <laughs> instead of an ROI study, I'll ask people, okay, issues one, uh, let's start with challenge number one that you shared with me. How long have you had that challenge? Oh, as long as I've been here. 18, and how long is that? Oh, 18 months. Oh, by the way, where were you before that? Oh, da -da 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 -da. what kind of solution did you use to address these issues then? So in the 18 months that you've been there, what have you done to try to improve the situation? And either they say nothing, in which case you start moving towards the door, or, or they share with you a litany of failed attempt to solve the problems, okay? Well, we tried this. Oh, that was a good idea to help. Well, not really. Ballpark. How much would you say this problem over the last 18 months has cost your organization? Oh my God, I, I, I don't know. That would be really hard to assess. Then I ask him one simple question. Paul, what's your gut tell you? And the funny thing is you got all these people uh, 30 seconds ago were saying, I don't know, right from here. The minute I ask him, what's your gut? Oh, my gut tells me we've left millions of dollars on the table. Millions of dollars, really? I mean, low millions? No, no, probably $10 million a year is it's costing us. Really, why do you say that? Those words coming from their mouth are so much more powerful than any ROI study that you can do that they're skeptical of to begin with. And if they so what I hear you say is you're, you're taking them on a journey from where they're skeptical, they see you as maybe a commodity, and you're helping them discover find that conviction right because before i want to have any kind of conversation on price i need to have some place to go first off i want to have the conviction before i start uh, talking price that it's in their best interest to go with my solution or at least you know there's a, a at least there's a fit later on maybe all the technical gurus got to get in there and make sure but i want to make sure from a pure hundred thousand foot business standpoint there's a good fit and there's a great potential return. But more importantly, I need them to have the conviction that if they invest 50000 or 500000 they're going to get a great return on investment. The other thing I always tell people is, hey, writing me a check alone is uh, writing us a check alone. is not going to be enough. I mean, you guys are going to have to invest. Uh, a, a lot of time, energy. I'm probably going to need some dedicated resources, internal resources helping me, you know. And, uh, you know, so what I want to know is solving these problems important enough to make that kind of an investment, not just in money, 
but in time, energy, resources, commitment, attention. They respect you when you tell them. I tell them exactly what it's going to take. And, I, and if they bring up something that we can't address, I stop them and I say, hey, Paul, A, B, and C, I'm confident we can help you. But D, R&D is working on it, but I'm not going to guarantee it's going to be ready in six months. They've been working on it three years. What I'd like to ask you, Ganesha, is you've worked with the top Tech technology companies on this planet and you've built relationships with many sales leaders over the years. What would you like to see them do differently to create a better sales environment for their teams? Well, some of them are starting to do it. And I would say put an emphasis on operating consciously. Uh, put an emphasis on only doing business if they're truly, can. both parties are truly convinced it's in the best interest of the client, of being transparent, of being honest. And I, I, I mean, ultimately, I, you know, I guess there's some folks out there that think maybe that's not the greatest short-term strategy, but I can tell you this, it's a great long-term strategy to develop a reputation for honesty for integrity, for caring, for taking the time to really listen to and understand, you know, what, what, what the prospective clients issues. I think Salesforce has done a very nice job because of Mark Benioff's leadership. I mean, he's a meditator as well. And uh, in fact, he uh, oftentimes has numerous, uh, you know, Buddhist monks staying at his home in San Francisco. And uh, uh, some of his top execs tell me whenever they have like a senior executive meeting with Mark, he has a, a Buddhist guy in orange robes leading a meditation before they start. So they can think about the worldwide implications. I mean, let's face it, companies like Salesforce are as powerful or more powerful than whole, full, whole governments these days, you know. I mean, the U.S. is basically run by corporations, and I'm sure you probably say similar things about maybe Ireland and other countries around the world. So business leadership, I think, has a great responsibility to, uh, you know, um, to inspire younger people to live in integrity. One of the reasons I think my training is so well received by young people is because I, I think they want, and, they, and, and young people are uh, you know, not necessarily more into religion, but they're more into spirituality these days. Spirituality being understanding themselves on a deep level. Not just getting completely lost in the outer world, but understanding you have an incredible world inside yourself. And that you have this place of deep peace that's always right there under the surface. If I can help people get in touch with that part of themselves that's always meditating, that's always peaceful, that always has this sense of well-being, they, uh, they can't operate like we used to do in the old days with uh, you know, trying to have a manipulative edge. Or even some of the early sales training, even some of the early consultative training was a little bit more focused on how to have a manipulative edge over the buyer versus the buyer being an ally. You know, and and uh, so in any event, I know that's a very hundred thousand foot answer, but I I think the quarterly driven aspect of 
uh, most corporations works against that. Yeah. It's a force that's pulling people away from giving them the space to do that. Well, because, you know, a lot of companies believe and a lot of companies are on a monthly and where, uh, you know, so it's hard to use this kind of a selling approach. or They believe it's hard to use this kind of a conscious uh, facilitative uh, uh, sales approach when they have to hit these, you know, you know, very high monthly targets to feel good about themselves. But ultimately, you know, the more enlightened sales execs, like a guy like Tony Redoni at Salesforce, understands that, you know, uh, 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 using this kind of a conscious approach ultimately is better, not just long term, it's better short term too. But you have to get your pipe, your pipeline full with, uh, uh, with folks that you've approached this way. Because then you don't need to use yeah, because then you don't need to use some fancy uh, price goes up on Monday approach to get a deal done. You already know. They've already convinced you they need to have a solution in place no later than such and such date for the following reasons. So then you don't have to, you know, uh, uh, use price as the lever. By the way, I think getting what your solutions are worth is in everybody's best interest, including the client. Because you have more money for R and D, you're going to be around longer. You're going to create better, uh, you know, uh, a new, better and newer versions of the product. Yeah, Ganesh, I want to respect your time. I have one final, very quick question. Um, when, 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 when your time comes, and you depart this realm, and the song is written in your honor, what would you like the title to be? The title of the song. <laughs> That's funny. I have a new song that I'm recording right now called Undying. <laughs> you know? And uh, I, but I know what you're saying. The undying part is about I, I don't believe that the soul that inhabits the body ever dies. I think it's undying. It lives forever. But in terms of this earthly existence, I, I'd say maybe we would be called He Cared. He cared about doing what's right. That seems a great place to leave it. Guru Ganesh, I want to thank you so much for being my guest today. If you've enjoyed this podcast half as much as I've enjoyed it, please consider giving it a review. With that, thanks once again, Ganesh. It was so good to catch up. And thank you for your insights and your and just your generosity in sharing your time. Well, that was easy, Paul, because you and I have always had an ease to our relationship, always enjoyed the time we've spent together. And I love the questions you ask. Usually it's all sales. And I like exploring some of the other areas, you know. <laughs>